Hi, I'm Abhinav. I'm Madhu. Welcome to the Inspiring Idea Podcast. We interview people from across the world and share their life stories and success formulas with our audience. We hope this will inspire you to achieve your dreams. So, let's get the show started. Richard is the CEO of Neuropath.io advising corporations on disruptive influence of digital acceleration, economic transformation, open data and artificial intelligence. He's also a virtual keynote speaker on various topics. He loves artificial intelligence, the trends around it, the ethics, accountability, explainability of AI, avoiding corporate AI eco chambers, building and deploying responsible AI, creating a digital future that works for all of us. He's also a virtual event host, chairing, hosting and leading events that discuss the risks, opportunities, the benefits and the dangers of AI. And, and the one that I love the most is host of the podcast Boundless, Designing Our Digital Future. He's also the host of the MKAI, AI Expert and Technical Forums, Shaping and Sharing the Potential of Artificial Intelligence on the Milton Keynes in 2019. This is a long list, Richard, and goes to show how illustrious your career is so far and how much value you have added to the It's a real privilege to have you on our show. How are you going? Good, I think you've reminded me of why I'm so tired <laughs> because I'm <laughs> clearly trying to do too much, aren't I? Fantastic to have you on our show. Today, we'll be covering the topic, new age leadership. And fast forward to 2030, we, being a technology fanatic, wanted to explore how the world will look like with people interacting and operating with machines and what a typical day would look like for individuals and business. Are you ready for that? As ready as I can be on that very difficult topic. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's get started. Richard, every guest in our show has a story to share. For example, we had Dennis Rothman and he shared a story about losing and finding his toy in garden by applying structured thinking, or John Thompson working overnight to produce a great analytic solution early in his career. What is your story? Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Dennis Rothman and John Thompson are people that I admire and appreciate greatly and would even go so far to call friends, which is such a privilege to say that. And thank you for the opportunity to be here. Do you know, there's always a reason that sounds good and a real reason, isn't there? When you have to answer a question like that. And it's only reasonable and fair that I give you the real reason that I uh, take such a great interest in this topic. And I think it's that we make bad decisions. We individuals and we as a species. And to quote Richard Feynman, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself. And you are the easiest person to fool. I'll say that again. The first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And I think we do fool ourselves every day on our, I don't know, self-importance, on our accountability, on believing that we have less social biases than we do. This list could last in many hours into the night. And I actually think AI can make a difference to that. I think it can help us to cross this chasm of understanding what we are and what we are not, what we are good at and what we are not good at. 
Excellent. And how about your career? I mean, I'm sure it's, it's something that might have resonated you that, you know, corporate life is not the one for me. Uh, and you have, you have done many number of years in corporate life. And then you felt that there's there a pressing need for you to change careers and, and start an, on your own and do something uh, very, very, very different. <laughs> I think I'd love to hear the same uh, for yourselves in a minute. Um, what really drives you and this passion for this podcast it interests me greatly. For me, I think, you know, we, we follow the footsteps. I think I followed the footsteps of my father into business and into corporate sales, which is a great place to be. And it was very lucrative. And clearly there's no point ever having any regrets in life. But I remember I was getting some sales coaching, external sales coaching, and uh, we got talking about von Neumann probes. And von Neumann probes are self-replicating probes that go out and create more of themselves. And they go out across the planetary system. And I said that it seemed like the Fermi paradox of where are they, where are the aliens, could not be resolved if such a thing like a probe could exist in the millions of years that we have had for this to have made its way across the galaxy. And the sales coach said to me, said, do you think a lot of salespeople focus on von Neumann probes? I said, probably not, if I'm honest. He said, are you sure you're in the right job? I said, probably not, if I'm honest. And it took a number of years to make that move, but eventually I just had to be brave and jump out and spend all of my time just learning, asking questions and hoping that the bills get paid. That's fantastic. And Richard, I would be very interested to know, when did you develop your interest in AI? Was it after seeing a science fiction movie or was it after reading a book? Uh, like when and how? Again, I'd love to give you a reason that sounds good, but I can only give you the real reasons. And I remember lying in bed years and years ago mm -hmm. and I suddenly thought, what shape is the universe? I was like, is it three-dimensional or two-dimensional? I thought, I don't know. So I looked it up and it's like flat. And I'm still trying to work out how the universe can be flat, <laughs> but it is. And then that night continued and yes, I should have gone to bed at midnight or 2 a.m. or 4 a.m., but I was awake that whole night and I realized that we humans can live forever. We can outlive the sun. We might even be able to outlive the universe. And that thought just hung with me, but that future would not be in this bionic form that we're in now it would have to be some augmented or machine-based future. And I feel like all I'm doing is talking about aliens here, but if aliens came to Earth, they, they would not be bionic, they'd be machines. That's the only way really that we can live on into the future. And it suddenly sparked this incredible journey that I feel like I'm on that started with the idea of super intelligence and artificial general intelligence and Nick Bostrom and paper clips all over the universe and all that stuff. And then finally came to earth and into the really important things to understand the influence of AI on our lives right now. You're an amazing storyteller, Richard. I'm, <laughs> we love hearing that story for sure. You're always taking, taking us back to the future, right? Uh, so that's where I, I really wanted to touch on the next topic, which is so hot, new age leadership. So let's start with the current situation on leadership, right? So this pandemic, you know, there's no brainer. This pandemic has obviously has had a phenomenal impact on leadership and the successes of businesses and individuals. So situation had demanded people to be more flexible, uh, more innovative, uh, more creative. And most importantly, it has pushed every single leader to embrace 
massive business process changes or deploy technologies which they never thought would have done. You know, they would have done in the, in the next, five, next five years or 10 years. So what's your take on how leaders have adapted to the, to the current situation before we jump onto the future? That's a really wonderful question. I think we're still in the COVID-19 journey. I think companies like Google will probably end up bringing most, if not all of their employees back into offices. There's a pretty good awareness now that there's going to be an innovation gap in 2021 because of remote working. So that's a really interesting dynamic. On one hand, we know that we need to get back together and chat over the water cooler and um, we have to get on the whiteboards together. We, we know that to be true. At the same time, we've found these new wonderful things in our life like flexibility and autonomy that we've never had before. And it, Warren Buffett says it's only when the tide comes out that we find out who was swimming naked. And my goodness, did we find out which leaders were swimming naked. Mm. The leaders that thought about installing productivity tracking software on their employees' laptops. You know, those that said, I want to see you at your desk at 9 a.m. I'll be checking in on you. <laughs> and this mindset, you know, it proliferates all the way through. 14% of AI projects are successful, right? 86% aren't. That's a huge number. Why is that? Well, because of exactly these same things. It's because these projects were formed in organizations where the culture didn't support the outcome. <laughs> and if you didn't have a thriving, great culture, you found COVID-19 distributed working really hard. And we saw bizarre things happening with leadership, raising questions like, you know, if you don't trust your employees, then you should change your mind or you should change your employees. Yeah. How, how on earth have you got a company where you don't trust? And push that through to the holistic paradigm shifts that we're in right now is I just don't think they're different. How you react to COVID, how you're able to lead an AI project, how you're thinking about sustainability, net zero, climate change, diversity, inclusion, social justice, loneliness, suicide, parental leave, you name it. They're all the same thing. It's about a culture of openness, about a culture where a leader can change their mind and a culture where you know the power of data, but you don't rely on data. Because if you create a culture that says we rely on data, how on earth are you gonna have a culture that encourages free thinking? It's a time to see who's willing to step up and lead these companies through these paradigm shifts. Uh, what do you both think? Exactly the same. In fact, uh, we were discussing about the, the current problems that we are, we are definitely facing in terms of decision-making, critical thinking, uh, you know, without, it comes, it's no brainer that we all need to have the trust element that you, that you mentioned, which will lead us to any implementations. And you have nicely articulated the problem. Just two key things which uh, I can call out is the, what you said is about culture and about trust. Okay. And I remember there were organizations who would force their team to sit within the boundaries of a project room before COVID and they were saying, if you know, you, you're working a project, you need to work, you know, and sit next to each other. So even if somebody is sitting outside the room is not acceptable. And now we have, now we all are working remotely and imagine like for a leadership, it's a completely new ball game altogether. And that's what it shows in terms of what you talked about, like what culture are you building and how you're developing trust post COVID because 
maybe your full framework has to change now. I think, I think anybody can be that leader, but I, I do think this is the time now of the servant leader, the, the leader where it is truly a privilege to lead. And I think we're still looking in some of the wrong places. If I perhaps may give you an example, there's the challenge in AI projects is that a lack of diversity in the project team means that you get some real skewed results when it comes to the scale out of that project. We've seen some weird things. We've seen machine learning based hand dryers that can't recognize black hands. None of that makes sense to me. Why do you need a hand dryer that recognizes hands anyway? Goodness knows how many times I've wanted to dry my tie in the past after an adventurous lunch in the car. And so we find ourselves in these weird situations. Well, if you want to get to that diversity in your project, I think you've got a real challenge because you might look around your organization and say, look, we've got lots of you know, genders and we've got lots of different colors of skin and religion and backgrounds. That's diversity. It's like, yeah, kind of, right? I mean, that's inclusiveness and that's brilliant. And all of those people will have had different perceptions of life and they will have been treated and treated others differently. And there's great value in that. But look beyond that. What age are these people? What social and economic background, economic background have they come from? And then think about who they are. They're all people that wanted to join this company. They're all people that successfully navigated the hiring process of this company. They're compensated the same way. They're reviewed the same way. They potentially have the same ambitions and they probably dress the same. So you find actually that's not the diversity we want. Then you've got people like Selena Lee, my friend down in uh, Cape Town in South Africa, an American who moved over there to set up Zindia data science competition platform. You can run a competition on her platform for about 12,000 plus dollars. So it's not expensive, right? And yes, you've got to share your data. So you need to have an openness to how you're going to be able to share the appropriate data with the people working on these projects. But anybody can join her platform. You don't need to be a certified data scientist. You don't need to have a degree, a master's, a PhD to join that platform. So they've got thousands of people. And here's one great project. She was working with uh, Uber on some placement of vehicles around a particular state. Where should they be and when? And... Uh, Two Russian guys won the project and they won by brute force. They had really powerful computers and they ran and they ran and they ran the models until they had the best outcome. They put it in, they won. Second place was one lady from Kenya who had to contend with the fact that her connectivity wasn't stable. It was really expensive to keep sending data backwards and forwards. And hey, guess what? The power kept going off. And her solution was like art. It was like finessed stroke work and brushwork, excuse me, on some fine art. And that's, when you think about it, that's diversity of thinking where somebody not only has to solve that problem for Uber, but has to solve it in a way that they know they have to restrict and limit the data exchange. They've got a limited time before the lights might go out again. And they've got to contend with connectivity issues. We're going to find some incredible leaders from that sort of group of people. Richard, I've got a very, very fundamental question is about what is the role of a new age leader now? Well, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to ask uh, David Orr to help me with this one. I'll read you what David Orr says, and you can tell me if you agree. He says, the planet does not need more successful people. The planet desperately needs more peacemakers, healers, restorers, storytellers, and lovers of all kinds. And the reason I mentioned this 
is that my dad used to say to me, son, no man is an island. And of course, no woman is an island. And I think now no company is an island. Every single thing you do is because you are on this planet. So don't pretend like you're not on this planet. And that's why I, I reference David Orr, who says the planet does not need more successful people. And it doesn't. What do you think? I 100% agree. It's about Absolutely. It's about uh, the, the caring uh, nature of us. It's about the human connection that we are going to make. All this will definitely take us far, far, and success will definitely follow us is what I humbly think. No, I, I agree to it. I think leaders have to look beyond their uh, boundaries of the organization that they're working for. I think they need to look at, uh, from a holistic perspective, how they're shaping up this world, okay? How they can connect with other leaders of the world and how they can make the difference. And that's, that's why we are connecting uh, with a lot of different people across the world. And it's one burning question that I had, uh, Richard. You know, you talked about diversity and you talked about the, the person from Kenya uh, winning the second place. And yes, the connection, the, uh, the AI skills, the knowledge, I see there's a fundamental gap uh, across the world. If you see the China's, the India's, the US, they're all uh, getting superpower in terms of AI, you know, access to people, access to technology, access to richness in uh, content of making superpowers in AI. But again, when you also look at other countries, uh, you know, which are not that privileged in terms of getting these accesses, there's, there is a disparity and how are leaders embracing this disparity uh, to more um, bring inclusivity in terms of AI for the world? I think with some difficulty. Uh, this is a problem I'm still very much wrestling with and I might be wrestling with for the rest of my life, fortunately and unfortunately. If you look at uh, climate change as an example of this, they, there is a uh, hundred companies that are responsible for 71% global emissions. That's 100 CEOs, right? Mm. So could it be then that a change of mindset from just 100 people out of all those billions would make a fundamental difference to our planet? Yes. But it's not that simple, though, is it? We sense that diversity and inclusion is important, and we sense that net zero is important. But it's the leader that knows why that really matters. And I think there's, there's two whys. One is to understand the world that we have to and need to live in. And I think that's the easier of the two. We, we need oxygen, right? We need clean water. These are not contestable things for anybody on this planet. Some of the climate activists talk about them and us, but who's the them? Who's the them that doesn't want clean water? I'm very confused by that statement. And the second is, of course, to know why, why it matters. Because if you want to be one of those CEOs and change, then you've got all of the stakeholders and the investors, and you've got the fiduciary, fiduciary obligation that your organization has and the way it makes decisions. So somehow this leader has to navigate that and they have to explain to shareholders why they need different people leading and working in their organizations. And that's, it's not a leap of faith. It, I promise you it isn't. It's just seeing around this corner. It's seeing what's coming next. You know, Larry Fink from BlackRock has written those letters that have said that you have to factor climate change now into your company decisions. But still, all these laggards, and this is so hard. I mean, look at Volkswagen, look at Ford, 
Tesla's eating their lunch. And what do they do about it? Not a whole lot. And we haven't even got to real autonomous vehicles yet. How are they going to compete against level five autonomous driving from Waymo at Google or Tesla or maybe Cruise? And the reason they can't is they can't convince their shareholders of what they need to do next. They can't convince their shareholders they should spend $2,000 per car kitting out the F-150 with LiDAR sensors. Mm-hmm. If they can't convince them of that, how are they going to convince them about climate and about inclusiveness and diversity? That's, what, that's the challenge of the leader now, and it's extremely difficult, but they've got to find a way to do it. So does that mean that it's not just the mindset needs to be changed for the leader, but also, for example, in an organization with the shareholders as well, with your example? I think there's more and more evidence-based decision-making. In the UK, we're blessed that we now have this 10-point plan that includes a lot of offshore wind. And when I spoke to climate experts about that, they said, well, well, yes, but they just followed the directions of an independently appointed external climate audit group. And what we had in the UK, which was amazing, is that if you didn't take their advice, you had to explain why. If you weren't going to follow their guidelines to meet the Paris agreements of 1.5 degrees or lower in warming over the next uh, 10 years, then why? And they couldn't, so they had to follow those guidelines. That's what you have to convince your shareholders of now, is that we won't get access to capital unless we are able to change. The Church of England's pulling all its capital out of companies that aren't in line with the Paris Agreement in the next, I believe, one to two years. Are there any other good examples from other countries where they are taking climate very seriously, Richard? US or India, do you have any thoughts on those? I think the the ones that aren't taking any action are are more visible at the moment. And I think you you (laughs) named one of those, but hopefully that's going to change. Uh, I am afraid Australia's got a lot of work to do as it stands, but (laughs) we shall see. Um, India, leader in um, moving towards electrification of vehicles. That's really impressive to see alongside the UK. And uh, I think across Europe, I think we have this unique position where we, we don't have the behemoths like China and the US do in terms of tech companies and AI companies. So it does allow us to think more broadly around areas like this, which are so much more inclusive than just this particular question, because it also extends into mindset and extends into open standards and open data and all these things that are much harder to do probably in China than they would be in Europe. Uh, so there's lots of exciting things happening. And, and when like India says we want to have no fossil fuel cars, no combustion engines by 2030, just think about that for a moment because across both of our countries, India and the UK, we have a network of petrol stations, gas stations or whatever you want to call them. And gas stations don't run at very high levels of profitability. It's quite tight actually, but they sell enough fuel that they make a return. Well, those petrol stations aren't going to go out of business in 2040 or 2050 because every day from now that we've set this president in the UK, they're going to be making less money, less profit. As soon as a petrol station can't hit that level of profitability, it has to close down. Mm. Okay. You could have government subsidies, but that kind of seems pointless if you're trying to get people to move to electric vehicles or hydrogen or whatever else. And so that's the knock on change that we see. So when a, company, a country does take a leadership position like this, all the other pieces around it move 
and all the market forces change and the supply chain changes. And suddenly there's hardly any petrol stations because it's not profitable to run a petrol station. And that gets really interesting then for dynamics of change. That's great. I think we spoke about the mindset. Um, my next question is that about the skill set. So what do you think is the important skill sets required for the new age leaders? These are, these are such hard questions that I hope I'm at least in any way doing them justice. <laughs> the, um, we're all learning, Richard. So <laughs> <laughs> We're all learning together, I promise you. It's, these are the things I'm wrestling with every day. Um, the skill set of leaders, I think, I think I sense that these are, are fairly well known and fairly well established. And I feel like it's more the delivery of these skills than it is trying to work out what they are. A little bit like all our big problems. I think we know how to solve them, but do we have enough energy and, and momentum to do them? There's a big push for diversity and inclusion in leadership. And how, you could ask the question, how does that relate to skills? And there's this sense that different leaders do things differently. And Absolutely, Richard. You know, as, as we continue to learn and brainstorm amongst us, some of the skills that actually stood out, um, you know, I, I was actually looking at um, uh, some of the articles related to uh, great leaders and what they are currently doing. One thing that came out constantly was the curiosity. You know, how do you, how do you make your mind so curious and you can be that explorer all the time, looking out for opportunities, be it technology or be it business processes and, and having that curious mind will eventually take you to a path of success and how you can you know, create an impactful communication to the team that you are actually taking them to a journey or a path that, is, that has got more light on it. I think those two stood out uh, to me in terms of leadership. It's, it's, not, it's not new age leadership. It's, it's a very age old leadership, but um, the way that we are going to use it with technology will actually stand out. And that's my thought on that. What do you think, Abhi? So I think beyond the conventional skills of a leader, I think one thing a new age leader has to look into is understanding technology, what it can do for you and what it cannot do for you. Because I see a lot of leaders, you know, gets really excited about new technology and, you know, making that jump. And to Richard's to your point, that 86% of the AI projects fail, right? So it's maybe because uh, we're trying to use AI in the fields where either we're not using it correctly or that was not the best use case that we picked up. So I think that I believe is very critical, especially when we are working, when we are moving to a world where we are remotely going to be working, okay? Uh, so I think, and then there's a buzzword that we hear all the time is digital transformation. And every leader is talking about, let's, let's jump into digital transformation. And I see a lot of people may not understand what you mean by digital transformation, right? And, but they are spending millions of dollars and spending on their IT projects and whatnot. So I think this is, I believe personally that that's something that they need to understand technology before they take those key decisions. I think that's wonderful. Um, maybe to add to that, I touched on it slightly earlier, but um, surrounding yourself with people that you allow to help you change your mind. I think I was thrown slightly by the word skills. Skills has a real uh, emphasis to it. And perhaps it's, it's just a broader word than that. Um, 
AI projects fail as well because of all the different languages in inverted commas that we speak in enterprises. How we, we have a leader that still might just be describing AI in the wrong way. I mean, how often do we still people, hear people saying, can we use a bit of AI on that? I mean, that makes no sense as a question, but I bet we still hear that. Um, when I worked in uh, Oracle, there was a real sense of why criticize the person above you or the person four or five levels above you. What was the point of being the messenger? There was just no benefit. You know, no, we didn't have a feedback of a culture of open feedback. We, I think we thought we did, but uh, I saw leaders who would give talks that were very highly mediocre and just adoring fans from the organization, worshiping them afterwards. It's like, you know, you, you are not going to improve as a leader if you're not able to get honest feedback. And I think just to give that an example, the leaders are going to have to challenge themselves with really difficult ethical decisions, particularly around AI. And it's going to scale so quickly and so fast and so large that you don't have a lot of time to do that. And if we take an example, let's say ASOS here in the UK, big e-commerce fashion provider, they have a real problem that some customers play the system to get uh, free delivery. And then they send back extra products they didn't want in the first place because it enabled them to hit a threshold that got them free delivery. So in essence, they buy a couple of pairs of socks. They don't want the socks, but it qualifies them free delivery. It's then free to send the socks back. It's a terrible system for, you know, economics, for the, you know, the environment and just for convenience and hassle and whatever. It just doesn't work. So you, you have to think about, well, what are we going to do about that? Pause that thought. And then you've got a company like Hayes. 50% of the CVs that Hayes get every day are not valid for work in the country that they're sent to. So they invested in RPA and uh, optical character recognition, recognition, OCR. Oh, we can work out which CVs are which and we can get a computer to work it all out. But hold on. Why are 50% of the CVs wrong in the first place? What are you saying and what are you doing as an organization that you're causing that level of confusion? Go back to ASOS. What kind of culture are you allowing your customers to be a part of where they just see you as some corporate machine that it's okay to take advantage of? And it's these questions you have to answer. Look, if the three of us ran a hotel chain, and I've talked about this on the podcast, we can ask the maid to go in and put a uh, Amazon uh, deep lens camera down in the middle of the room and take a 360 photo. It's not a photograph that we could ever look at, but it's a machine learning based image that would tell us basically how clean the room is. Mm-hmm. It can analyze the towels and tell you how clean the towels are. And we can score that guest and we can increase or decrease the price of their next stay depending on how they left the room and the cost that we incurred to clean it and bring it back to a standard. But if you're starting to choose at that point exactly how A, you're going to do that or B, you're going to communicate that to your customers because you want to be transparent, right? Then you've lost the battle. The battle began so much further back from that when you empowered people to make the right decisions in your company, not to be right, but to make the right decisions and to be allowed to fail, to be allowed to get it wrong, to be allowed to learn, to be allowed to change their minds so that you never reach a point where it's a rock and a hard place. I'll give you one more quick example. I'm on a rant here, but I'll give you one quick more. Twitter. What does Twitter do? Does Twitter block freedom of speech or does it allow hate speech? Which is, which is the great choice out of those two? Mm. They're both terrible choices because Twitter's put itself in a position where it's no longer able to make a good choice. 
It's got to restrict people's voices or it's got to be seen to be allowing hate and Holocaust denial and all this terrible stuff that can be put onto social media. Perhaps the same reason that Twitter got hacked. 1,200 people had the Twitter master password. Some of them didn't work for Twitter anymore. What does that ask tell you about the skill set of that leader? What's gone wrong? What, what is he not doing right? What is he not allowing in? Is he not being pluralistic enough in his leadership? Should we have two CEOs at the top of every company rather than one? Big questions, big decade ahead of us. I would agree. In fact, I'm also seeing a trend of uh, AI ethics leader or AI governance leader. They're all uh, you know, hot cakes in the market right now and it continues to grow. And I can see a lot of job descriptions which never existed, say six months ago, now flooding in the, in the job market. And which goes to show uh, how leaders need some support in terms of the ethics and governance practices in AI and, and machine learning and data science projects that they would need a hand on. Is it, is it something that the leaders can develop themselves? Is it, is it because of their technology deficiency or, or just more uh, pragmatic and more uh, horse-like mindset, you know, riding horse-like mindset, where just thinking about project management, cost, scope, and executions. So I don't know, but something to ponder about these uh, new roles. And I'm, I'm, I love those uh, roles, to be honest, Richard. Yes. What do you think? I've got a different opinion. I believe, why should you, you have somebody in this position? Why can't everyone you know, think about ethics or diversity? Like, why do you need one person to drive it? Like, if you got the existing leadership and they can understand these concepts, okay, and they can make a, they can play their part in implementing it in every section of the work that they're doing or the teams that they're running. Why do you need a separate role for this? I'm like, that's my opinion. It's a, it's a really interesting area of exploration. We've, um, we've centered on this idea of the chief data officer. And I, I mean, I love seeing that role when it's in place. I do some work with my local council. And I, you know, if they appointed a data strategy leader for the council, you know, not somebody who cares about the HR files, but looks ahead to the data collection from sensors at scale across the city, 5G, massive IoT. What an amazing appointment that would be. But what would it matter if nobody else in the council understood data? What are they going to do? How are they going to get access to money? Think about all the other people that are accessing the money. I think it was, um, uh, it was the data whisperer, Scott. <laughs> who said, you know, CDO wants to go and pitch to the CFO. He's competing against the CMO, the chief marketing officer, the chief sales officer. The chief marketing officer and the chief sales officer tell stories for a living. That's what they do. That's what they're paid to do. And that's what you're competing with when you're in one of these different roles. I don't, I don't think it. I think it's too siloed. I think it's what you're saying, Abby, that it's got to be a shared problem. Yeah. What it means for these uh, new age Udemy's, uh, the Coursera's, where they're teaching about leadership skills for the, for the you know, 21st century. Uh, you know, we've got a whole heap of uh, problems to resolve. And is, is there a way that, is there a gap you feel? Is there a market opportunity? <laughs> I'm just thinking big. Well, what um, uh, Yusuf uh, Nafif said to me uh, just a couple of days ago is he said, when we're solving like the sustainable development goals from the UN, like, they were the problems from 2015. We're trying to solve them now, 2020. We're trying to solve them by 2030. They'll be 15-year-old problems by then. 
we didn't even know about COVID. We started the SCGs. We didn't even understand AI when we started doing that in those um, organizations that helped to develop them. We're constantly solving yesterday's problems. Like we will, we will get through COVID. We will find a way, we'll find a vaccine, we'll do something, right? But then what? What does it say about our, about our resilience really as leaders? So how do you, how do you conclude this uh, topic? Richard, you know, if you want to, we have, we have we brainstormed a lot. We talked about different skill set. We talked about mindset. Now, if you want to really package it for our listeners and viewers, what are the skills? What are the mindsets? So can we try and give it a go amongst us? Well, you, okay, but you start and then <laughs> I'll try and chime in, okay? What, what do you think is so important? I mean, these are what aspiring leaders, their managers, their execs. I think leadership at various levels, I think we can definitely have some common traits in terms of mindsets. It's about owning the accountability. Again, I'm going back to the same basics of what uh, leadership was all about 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It's about owning and thinking from different perspectives. And for, for you to get that view, you need to have the diversity and inclusivity in terms of your people, in terms of your in terms of your even you know you talk about AI projects fail and I, I think it's because of non-diverse nature of the team members that you've got and the second thing that I would uh, say is uh, the curiosity and why a particular solution needs to be implemented why not the other that curiosity what are the different technologies that we have got today I think you covered it really well just a couple of things which we discussed earlier is that leaders have to also start thinking globally Okay, they just can't think about the organization they're working in. And as you said, Richard, even like 100 top leaders can make a you know, big difference if they want to. Number two, you need to definitely get the leadership. And again, it's from old school of thought that leadership is not just at the CX level. It has to be at every level in the management. Okay. And third is that you would definitely need to understand technology and how you can use it. That's also the third critical element moving forward uh, post-COVID. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. If you can find a leader who exhibits true curiosity and authentic interest in the subject matter, I think they'll go a long way. And I, I guess the thing that came to mind is that you could do a lot worse than really understanding what sharing means in the 2020s, the sharing economy. I and mean, we all know that we're going to be sharing vehicles and whatever, and that's all part of it. Um, but perhaps I could leave with an example, if that's okay. We, we want to convert 32 million cars in the UK from fossil fuels to, in theory, electric, but let's see, it could be hydrogen. So that's one thing. That's about 250% more reliance we'll have on the electrical grid to do that. It's a huge increase in electricity, clearly. We can do that by adding to our, you know, our supply chain, but far better than that would be to look at ways of balancing the grid. And at the same time that we add all this offshore wind into the UK, at the same time that we have a surge in demand through electric vehicles, we also have potentially tens of millions new batteries that are going to arrive. The batteries are sitting on your driveway, of course, and in office car parks and whatever. And how we connect the dots on that is going to be key. But we can't do that unless we share. So why would Nissan share their data back to the grid? Well, they shouldn't really. Well, not unless Volkswagen does and Tesla does, and then they need to be shared back. And then actually you kind of need the people who drive the cars to share their own personal diaries, because otherwise you're going to drain their car and then they find out they need to be in Stockport. 
200 miles away tomorrow. That's not going to work. So why would we do it? Well, there's no reason other than we have to. If we don't all share that data in the right way, not open data, but shared data, then we're never going to be able to have a balanced grid. And for me, it's like, well, why do I pay my council tax? I pay for the fire service, but I haven't used the fire service in my entire life. I'm still really happy to pay for it. I'm still really happy to pay for the NHS. Things that I don't call upon because that's the world I want to live in. So why should Nissan share their data with the grid? Because it will create the world that we want to live in. Thank you so much for being with us today, Richard. That was a fascinating discussion on the topic New Age Leadership. Thanks for tuning in, my friends. We have got thousands of people listening to this podcast and wanted to thank you all for the love and encouragement so far. Some of you have reached out personally to us and thanked as well for producing great quality content. It would be awesome if you like and follow our LinkedIn page, Inspiring Ideas. And please don't forget to hit the subscribe button from where you are listening. We are across all the key podcast channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. We will see you with another great episode next week. Thank you so much.